Back on The Takeaway, I'm Tanzina Vega here. Now consider this for a moment. I've never been asked what I am in my own imagination. That's Morgan Jerkins. She's reading from her new book, This Will Be My Undoing. What is a black woman to herself out from under the shadow of the white woman? For black women, whiteness and white womanhood linger over our heads, smothering our consciousness every day. But we are not the inverse of whiteness or white womanhood for that matter. Still our bodies find a way to come back to us distorted like images in funhouse mirrors. We know something is wrong with the distortions, but we cannot say what. Morgan joined WNYC's producer of special projects, Rebecca Carroll, as part of our book club series, Reading the Reckoning. Hey, Morgan. Hi. Let's get right into the book. There's this narrative of a certain black experience that is drawn to whiteness. Mm-hmm. Whether it's because of circumstances like myself, who was adopted into a white family mm-hmm. and raised in an all white town, or for you, influenced by this kind of narcotic caste system. Mm, so, I like that. yeah. So, what exactly is the draw to whiteness? Beyond, I mean, and we can certainly just simplify it by saying, oh, ease, sanity, power, privilege. But, but when we're younger, I don't think we think in those terms. No. When I was younger, I just wanted to be validated to not ever have that sense of I'm not supposed to be here, to never have that sort of question that I have to fix myself in order for others to be comfortable with me. And I think even when I was a kid, that was what I sort of grew up with, even though I didn't have the vocabulary of like respectability, politics or colorism. As a child, I mean, from the first chapter, when I'm talking about cheerleading trials, I was 10 and I still knew I was like, I'm not meant to be here. There's not a place for me. But you were drawn to it. Yeah, because they were everywhere and no one questioned their beauty and no one questioned just who they were as people. And I just thought that the way for me to get that relief, as crazy as that sounds, is to assimilate. It's it's so interesting, though, too, because throughout the arc of my own writing career and career, you know, I've, got, I've sort of reached this point where I almost feel like I need to divest entirely from whiteness mm-hmm. because I was so mm-hmm. entrenched and inundated and swallowed by it. Mm-hmm. But you write about wanting to be swallowed by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I had low self-esteem, very low self-esteem. I did not really believe in my own beauty. I didn't really believe my beauty as a black girl. And because of that, I wanted to be absorbed. I just thought that because whiteness is so powerful, so all encompassing, it's just, just swallow me right up because I can't, I don't want to be out there by myself. Right. And the adjacency to it. I remember that so vividly. It's like, I know how, I know how I'm going to play this. Right. Right. Because I see where the power is. Right. So I'm going to, to, to position myself adjacent to that right. power. We've done it our whole lives. Right, because it's like, I don't want to fight. You know what I mean? And if I fight, you know, when you're a kid, it's like, I don't want to fight. I don't want to, you know, already stick out more than I am. So I'm going to try to be like you. Right. You know, even in, in, in when I was in sixth grade, the whole narcotic caste system that you said, I mean, there were white girls who were having these popular girl trials and they're all white people. And I wanted to be a part of it. So you also, though, had w- friends of color. Yeah. And what were they thinking? We never talked about it. You know, when I was trying out to be a cheerleader, 
I didn't talk to many of my uh, friends of color about it because they didn't see reflections of themselves in that squad. They were, you know, doing other things. And I was obsessed with being on this team. Perhaps now that I'm thinking about it as I'm talking to you, I was kind of ashamed because I felt like I shouldn't even want it because I don't even see myself on that squad. But I do want it. So I'm going to do whatever I have to to be there. And so why do you think you didn't see comfort or your reflection in your friends of color? Man, I don't think it was enough. It was like when I looked at white girls, they could be validated in both white and spaces where they're people of color. Whereas for me, I was like, why can't I be validated with my black friends and also in these spaces with white people as well? Why do they get to have that fluidity and I don't? And so did you did some of those friendships fall out with with friends of color? They didn't fall out in a sense when I was trying for the squad, obviously, because I was so uh, obsessed with getting on the squad. I didn't open up to them that way. So I I do see I think I remember like the communication was sort of uh, it, it diminished. But I think when I talk about in the first chapter of my book, um, not all of my friends of color were black. So we also have to keep in mind that there are uh, people of color who have to deal with anti-blackness as well. And when I got into an argument with a friend of mine who was Filipina, who we never were invited over her house. We never understood because she listened to rap music. She wore the New York fitted hats. I mean, she was in our group like that. And, and she never, was she was fluid. Like, like yeah, she was fluid. Right, yeah. You know, we accepted her as our own and whatever. But and she literally said, like, you know, you, you know why you didn't get on that squad? Because yeah. monkeys like you don't get on that squad. And that was the moment where I was like, okay, so now it's even more compartmentalized. It's not just we're all not white. Now it's even further because now you just you you just use anti-blackness against me. And the moment that we're arguing, I would never have used her ethnicity or race against her in an argument, even as a kid. It's like, why would I do that? Right. I, I'm thinking, too, about um, the essay where you write about um, being a black gentrifier and – um, trying to figure that out and navigate mm-hmm. that and and how you didn't you wrote you didn't know how to be in black spaces mm-hmm. and it, I was curious because your mother who you're close with mm-hmm. is black mm-hmm. your your origin for mm-hmm. lack of a better word mm-hmm. is black mm-hmm. so you always at the end of the day came home to a sense mm-hmm. of blackness mm-hmm. so how is it that you were unable to be in black spaces well my mother and I'm very close to my mother so I'm glad you picked that up from reading that I think she was trying to make sure that I was socially mobile as possible. And so there are many, there are a few moments in the book where I talk about where it comes to my hair or the way that I was dressing in high school was like, I want you to look the part. You have to. You can't just be raggedy, as she says. So if that means I got to go and buy you these Argyle socks and not anybody, not every black girl looks like that, then so be it. Because I want them to see that you can, you know, walk the walk and, you know, talk and, you know, all those things. Um, But what I'll say about Harlem specifically is that it is the only place that I've been to where I was not conscious of white people. You know, even when I lived in New Jersey, yeah, when I when I'm in the kitchen with my aunties or when I'm at church, those are particularly black spaces. But if I go to a Macy's or whatever, I still have to be conscious of white people and their microaggressions. Whereas I know if I'm in Harlem, if for some morning I'm just tired and I don't want to take my scarf off, I know that when I go to the CVS, there's still going to be an employee there that says good morning to me. Nobody 
nobody's going to look down at me and no one and, and I'm acknowledged. And I think there are certain times where I can even go to uh, the Upper West Side and go to Flatiron and, you know, sometimes white women won't even look me in my face. You know, mm-hmm, they'll mm-hmm. see me coming outside. They'll see me coming behind on the door and they'll just shut it. Mm-hmm. But in Harlem, it's the only time where I just I get that relief and it's widespread. I know that I'm going to be acknowledged. I know that somebody is going to address me while looking at me and saying like, hey, or I'll walk down the street and someone will give me a nod and say, I see you. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to be up in your business, but I know that you're there. Mm-hmm. And the friend that you explored it with uh, said black people are everything. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was crazy because. You know, I came from New Jersey and I knew that like part of the reason why Harlem seemed attractive to me because it seemed safer and I didn't really know the politics of, you know, gentrification like that. So I really read up on it and I was like, whoa, am I contributing to the problem? And then this man who used to work at the Schoenberg, I don't know if he does now, but he took me to their nice garden there, you know, took me for smoothies and was like, listen, like, and he said it very kindly, but he basically told me, your your idea of blackness is so limited. Like, it's very limited. So what if I just told you there is no limit to that? Right. And so that makes me think then, too, of the way in which you describe these black girls in middle school and high school who were mm-hmm. a certain kind mm-hmm. of, of black mm-hmm. girl, bold and brash mm-hmm. and, and that kind of – that stereotype that is perpetuated. But these are were not stereotypes. These were real girls mm-hmm. um, and that they did not adhere to your respectability politics. You didn't have the language for it then, mm-hmm. but you knew that that's what it was. But mm-hmm. of course we see and we celebrate – women who embody girls and women who embody that kind of blackness today particularly now in pop culture and so when you see those those women how do you feel how has your impression or opinion of those girls and that sort of kind of blackness changed well i think it's admirable i think you know even when i was in middle school and i saw these girls and they were so bold and they let people know that they were there they didn't kowtow in a way, I didn't have that then. I just, I, like I said, I wanted to be consumed and I wanted to get out of high school, middle school as early, you know, as quickly as possible so I can just do what I wanted to do. And so now that I feel like we're in this time where it's like unapologetic black girls, carefree black girls, I wish that I would have heard those phrases when I was in that age where I really needed it. I think about that all the time. <laughs> Black girl magic, honey, yeah, I could have like, used that. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Would you read a little bit for us? I have never been asked what I am in my own imagination. What is a black woman to herself out from under the shadow of the white woman? For black women, whiteness and white womanhood linger over our heads, smothering our consciousness every day. But we are not the inverse of whiteness or white womanhood for that matter. Still our bodies find a way to come back to us distorted like images in funhouse mirrors. We know something is wrong with the distortions, but we cannot say what. This is the magic that I believe Claudia talks about in The Bluest Eye. But if we are not the opposite of whiteness, then what are we? Maybe the truth is that we are invisible to ourselves. The truth is we are all clamoring for something ancient within our souls that is still virgin from white touch. We are nostalgic for something that we cannot claim, an artifact within ourselves that was not chained when our foremothers were transported across the Atlantic to the New World. The Portuguese call this saudade, feeling a loss or absence of something that we know will never return. 
We may never find it, but we must keep digging anyhow. It is an arduous battle to piece together our existence while we are trying to resist during our individual lives. I do believe in the Audre Lord saying that you cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tools, but we've been working in that house for centuries. We may know the tools better than the master, and we must all know the ways in which they operate in order to destroy the master's power over our lives. We must consider white womanhood. If we abandon that prematurely without studying its influence, then we will not know all the ways in which that power functions so that we can trap it before it traps us. But we must not dwell on it for too long. For as long as white women have been appropriating our bodies, we have been insulted and afflicted. And frankly, I am tired of being in such an abusive relationship that I never agreed to in the first place. There was never any honeymoon period. There is no need to consider those who take without giving, speak without listening, and use feminism as a way to unify without analyzing black women's differences and their complications. Wow, so timely um, and also so um, – it just really cuts right through to so many things that black women all share. Mm-hmm. But but I, I was struck by that, that idea of, of who you are or what you are in your imagination. What are you in your imagination? Whatever I want to be. And that is something I never allowed myself. I think when we when you talk about these these ideas of black girl magic, unapologetic black girl, carefree black girl, self care, care. I never cared about myself because I was too busy comparing myself to to the white girl in front of me or the white girl that I'm going to soon come in contact with. And so when I think about what I'm going to do today, what I'm going to wear, what lipstick I'm going to put on. You know, even something as simple as like, oh, I couldn't wear yellow lipstick. Like that just seems like something I see white girls wear. No, I'm going to wear it. Why am I limiting myself? And is that my conditioning? And how do I keep unraveling that? So I think, you know, when I was, you know, the context for that essay, when I was thinking about Rachel Dolezal, where, you know, it was it was painful to watch people say, well, why can't she be a black girl? And then to see all these black girls saying she can't be us because she doesn't know us. And even though and I agree with all that, but I said, okay, well, then how do we know each other then? You know what I mean? How do we study who we are without make without whiteness creeping in and becoming the center all over again? And how do we have these conversations that aren't confined to the kitchen table, that aren't confined with just black women? Because other people need to hear it. That sort of makes me think about, you know, yes, we are in this moment of really embracing sort of unapologetic blackness and a kind of Cardi B mm-hmm. out there mm-hmm. kind of feel. Mm-hmm. But it also feels like whiteness can only take in a certain a couple ways of being black, right? So right. it's Cardi B or it's Serena Williams, right? Right. Right. But there is a spectrum yeah. of ways of being black. I don't right. mean more black or less black. I mean a ways of being individually black. Mm-hmm. So we have to, yes, have that conversation. Mm-hmm. We also have to claim those identities. Where do you fall on that identity spectrum? Man, it depends on the situation. Because if I'm really passionate about something. I can talk with a cadence that's not like this. Um, if I'm doing interviews, don't ever talk with a cadence that isn't like that. Uh, well, well, you know, like it just well, cold switching, right? But then right, that's but another form that's whole, of yeah. survival that we do. And I think you know, and it's something that I, I really want to write about as well, and, and and think about more deeply because I think for so long, 
even in black circles, we think of blackness as a as a measurement tool that someone else can say that person's less black because they like anime. That's right. That person's less black because they listen to Metallica. And it's like, isn't that a form of white supremacy, though, that I can't digest what you're doing? So what I need to do is is measure it. That's the only way I'm going to be able to understand you. And I think that's the same thing with whiteness. It's like this this whole this this huge divide between like, oh, are you an Angela Davis or are you going to be a Beyonce? And it's like, but well, what about the women that oscillate between the two or just are on a different or just on a, a different, different level? level. Yeah. And that's the thing I also wanted to say in my book, and I make it very clear at the end of the first chapter, like I am not the only story that's out there. There are many privileges that I admit to and I have to put out there and say that these are the privileges that happened that, you know, informed my life, influenced my life, but they can't speak for everyone else. So you have to keep digging for these other stories. And so why did you write this book? I wrote this book first and foremost because I wish that I would have had this type of book. And I think about all the conversations that we have about black womanhood. And I was like, why? And I was, you know, at the time I was reading so many essays, collections, essay collections by white women and I, and like exposing their interiorities just unabashedly. <laughs> and I was like, well, why can't I do that? And it was interesting because when I was writing the book proposal and I had to do something called comp titles, which you, you have comparison titles. And I was looking within the last 10 years and I was like, for black women specifically. And I was like, this is hard. And I said, okay. I'm not the end-all, be-all, but I'm just going to see what happens, and let me send it out. And thankfully, a publisher well, took it. <laughs> speaking of which, speaking of which, I mean, you tweeted this morning, like in the past five months, like all of or or however many month. months, the past month, five folks have gotten book deals. In the past year, mm-hmm. the amount of essays and and memoir and books by young black folks is is incredible. It's a, a really amazing time, I think, for black uh, I, I for being a black writer. But I think w- what has also affected that is social media. I mean, mm-hmm. don't. How, I mean, you're very active on Twitter and and social media. How do you feel like? How do you use it? Oh, I, I mean, I use it to tweet about the books I love. I tweet it. I mean, I use it to talk about you know irreverent things like men or food or you know talk, be vulnerable with people because New York is so, it could be a very isolating place. And there have been many moments where I'm just like I just want to talk about something and make a thread. And I'm lucky to find people who gravitate towards it. But I mean, I also want to make it clear that if it were not for Twitter, I would not be where I am. I met my agent through Twitter. My agent is a woman of color. My The acquiring editor for this book knew me through Twitter. Like that. Otherwise, I'd probably be on my fourth unpaid literary internship by now. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. No, I believe you. I know. And I've watched you soar and I can't wait Thank to you. see you soar even higher. The book is called This Will Be My Undoing Morgan Jerkins. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was WNYC's Rebecca Carroll and author Morgan Jerkins in conversation as part of our book club series, Reading the Reckoning. If you want to read along with us, you can find our book list at thetakeaway.org slash series slash reading the reckoning. And if you enjoyed listening to Rebecca and Morgan, download today's podcast where you can hear more of their conversation that we just couldn't squeeze into the show. Morgan answers the question, what are you in your imagination? And they discuss the spectrum of being black. For so long, even in black circles, we think of blackness as a as a measurement tool that someone else can say that person's less black because they like anime. That's right. That person's less black because they listen to Metallica. And it's like, isn't that a form of white supremacy, though, that I can't digest 
what you're doing. So what I need to do is is measure it. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you'll get all sorts of extras that you won't find in our show on air. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>